Yo, Pooch. Jumbo. I feel like we 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 started the we started the last Thursday's episode with a with a Spanish greeting. So I thought, why not just go South yeah. African, African? But there's more nuance to that. It's Hujambo, and I think your response to Jumbo. Oh, oh. Okay, I got a, I got a uncultured open swine. <laughs> how's uh, how's your week been? So far, so good. Enjoying the weather. It's been freezing in Los Angeles. Like the my car has like a very thin layer of frost on it, which is uh, concerning. As somebody but, who spent uh, many years in Boston, I have zero sympathy for that statement. <laughs> yeah. Zero. Yeah. Now Boston and New Hampshire definitely have a speed on that end, but but uh, once it gets to like single digits here, all the all the UGG boots and the North Face jacket come out. So yeah, all the girls look like Han Solo. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> That's exactly All of them. exactly. I, I was going to say it was that, and then, uh, and then, uh, yeah. I mean, just just typical, you know, startup end of year type, you know, cram, uh, just to make sure everything's done before Christmas. So nothing, nothing too special on my end. But yep. uh, this, this, so I wasn't, I wasn't um, fortunate enough to be um, in this, this, this interview with with this new person that he's going to get into. But um, I heard. He's, yes. he's extremely interesting. Yeah. Yes. So I was fortunate enough to to be able to do this interview without Mo um, <laughs> interfering with his face. But yeah. You know, so sometimes, like you know, we talk to people from Kuwait and like adjacent parts of the world, like the Emirates. Like we did Haras, for example, of Medi. Um, and sometimes we talk to people in the states where you know my work and your work happen to be centered. And occasionally mm-hmm. we talk to someone who has kind of sort of the same background as us. Um, you know, like Saud Khalifa, who we interviewed, who was actually, I think, the first or second interview we ever did. Um, yeah. you know, he kind of grew up in Kuwait and then headed over to the States for his professional life. Look, Kuwait has a large and vibrant, like, expat community, non Kuwaiti community, who sometimes go on to do great things abroad. Uh, Lloyd happened to be in Kuwait with his Indian expat parents, and his dad was working at a hotel at the time, um, up until the invasion, up until 1990. You know, um, you know what's funny about that? Like we we actually mentioned this briefly before we even met Lloyd, which was um, when we were talking about what it takes to have a large domestic incumbent, and we said, you know, the Indian startup scene is is something that we should take a look at, and we should be more friendly to them um, in terms of you know uh, having them start businesses in that region. But yeah, you know, I mean, n- not to go off on a different topic, but if if people like Lloyd had been allowed to become Kuwaiti citizens and and remain here long term and set up their businesses here and bring in more, you know, talent from abroad, then maybe stories like his company, like Boast AI, could have been a local story. But maybe that's wishful thinking. That's a totally different topic. Anyhow, but sure. uh, so Lloyd uh, Lloyd went out to uh, he went on to Canada to study um, engineering before he moved to the states with his uh, then girlfriend, now wife. Um, and he worked at a number of startups for starting one of his own, which was Boast AI. Um, and what they do is they help startups get R&D tax credits and advantages that they deserve by law, by navigating difficulty typically associated with that process. Yo, did you know you can get 10 to 15% uh, of your payroll expenses back in the US and up to 70% in Canada for certain R&D uh, projects? Like if, you, if, you're bur- if you're building certain products, if you're doing it, in a certain jurisdiction, you can get that much money back. Did you know that? Holy shit. I might need to pay a visit to our Excel file that has all the projections. Yeah. I may I don't know. Just you know, 
we're not paid by Bose to say this, by the way, but that fact like really blew my mind. And he mentioned a lot of things mm-hmm. in this interview that I had absolutely no idea about, despite having, uh, you know, gone through a, only 10 million decks, like, you know, for startups in the States and having advised a number of them and invested and all that. Uh, nothing I had ever heard before. And I'm surprised that this doesn't kind of factor more prominently in people's like financing for financial forecasts and decision-making. Because yeah. um, especially US you know, as an early stage, exactly. As an, as an early stage company, like this could buy you some serious couple of months of runway at least. Yeah. I mean, this is a, this is a material difference for a seed stage company. Um, anyhow. Yeah. So we, we go into all mm-hmm. that. We go into like the, you know, the historical, uh, role of, of R&D tax credits in the U.S. tech ecosystem. Um, remember that book I read, Skunk Works? Oh, yeah. Yeah, you told me about it. So Skunk Works is really about what can happen, at least in that book, with respect to like you know aeronautical engineering, when the government is willing to back you to the extent that they do. It was... It, it, it's it's really insightful. And I kind of bring up the example of how this is not a, a uniquely American thing. Like other governments have also backed their scientists internally with state funds in order to achieve amazing things. Like the, the best example I can think of outside the US is like Sergei Korolev. Um, oh yeah. You know, the, the, the Soviet uh, rocket engineer and the guy who headed their space program. Yeah. Um, who quite literally... Like I think at one point was doing the work of ten to fifteen American aerospace corporations as a single man, which was impressive. Yeah, which makes it all the more tragic that he died early. But you know, mm-hmm. I mean, let's get to it. Um, by the way, I, this is this is one of those episodes where I think a lot of uh, early stage R and D heavy founders are going to want to pull out a pen and paper and start taking some notes because there may be real financial ramifications for your startups uh, if if you actually follow some of the advice he he gives out you know so generously for free uh lloyd was an absolute pleasure to speak to he's working on some amazing stuff at boast and i hope you enjoy the interview yeah let's get to it let's do it hello hey how's it going um aziz do you go by aziz right or abdul aziz Whatever you want, honestly, as long as you can pronounce either one correctly, I'm fine. I'm fine with whatever. How are you doing, man? Good, man. Great to chat with you. And yeah, I'm glad yeah. that we're both in the OnDeck community. What a small world. <laughs> man, OnDeck has really paid dividends. Like so far, I've met so many really, really interesting people on OnDeck. I don't know about your experience, but it's just like been one amazing conversation after the next with your investors, founders, someone in the middle. It's just been, it's been so great. Same, same here, man. And I already had a community, right? I had this traction community with like a hundred plus thousand subscribers. We host over a hundred events, but like, it's, it's funny because, um, one of the guys like Ty who runs on deck scale used to come to our traction events. He was also a customer. Um, and it's just, there's a lot of like, uh, you know, when you're part of many communities and there is a good cross pollination, then it's no longer, a community it's a movement right and that's that's the amazing thing everyone knows everyone everyone's one degree away like even surprisingly when we connected like i mean what are the odds uh, i was born in kuwait and so were you yeah. <laughs> we we have so many people in common right so yeah. um the tech had cut out borders for sure definitely and by the way the whole cross-pollinated community thing like yeah i'm in the same like slack hell as you where i'm i forget which slack i met people in and we're kind of stuck in the middle but uh, i think that's just an analog metaverse now and then sooner or later once we're all in our oculus headsets talking to each other's avatars 
like, oh, you're from uh, you're from that other universe. I, I remember I remember you. But <laughs> <laughs> yeah, exactly, exactly. Man, I look. I mean, I've I, people who've been listening to this podcast know that like I normally start by asking about people's like formative years, where they went to school, where they grew up. But like you said, you kind of shocked me by saying you grew up like a stone's throw away from where I'm recording this in Kuwait right now. So, I mean, I have listeners in the States and I've got listeners in Kuwait and I guarantee you both of them are going to be interested in hearing uh, how the co-founder of Boast AI actually grew up uh, in Kuwait. Definitely. Yeah. So my parents are from India and uh, they were working in Kuwait. My my dad actually used to work for the Radisson SAS hotel. Um, and, um, and so yeah, I grew up in Kuwait. I was born in Kuwait. And um, when the Gulf War hit in the 90s, so the, the story goes, I'm like a serial procrastinator. I'm a hyper productive procrastinator. Um, and I think all many entrepreneurs are. So I used to study for my exams like a few hours before. And uh, this was 1990 or 91. I can't remember. I went for an exam thinking it was math. And it ended up being geography. And I'm like, shit, man, I'm going to fail. Right. And then the summer, summer, summer hits. And my mom comes and tells me, hey, the war broke out in Kuwait and uh, schools are not going to reopen. And my first thing was, oh, I was excited because I'm like, my parents are never going to find out that I failed. But then when it sank in, I'm like, shit, the war broke out. Um, you know, there's a lot of looting. There's a lot of bombing. Uh, there's all kinds of stuff going on. And we were in limbo. All of a sudden, your currency is not valid. You know, jobs are gone. And um, and the next thing I realized, I'm on this bus with a whole bunch of refugees, and we're going from Baghdad to Jordan um, via no man's land, living in the in the tents with uh, the UN dropping like tuna and khabs, uh from from the uh, from the plains. And you know, one thing I realized, yeah. So we we had to drive through Baghdad, right? Like through Iraq, from Kuwait through Iraq, and then no man's land, and then Jordan to get out. Uh, which was which was a very interesting experience. Like there was this highway of death. Um, yeah, I was going to say. I mean, it was very way, interesting. I think this is but, the first time I've heard somebody exiting in 1990 through Baghdad and not just south through Saudi. No, it was uh, it was through Baghdad. I'll never forget that. Um, it, it was it was on a bus, and and there was one very interesting thing that that formulated my thesis in life. I was probably like eight years old. And, um, and, and, you know, I, as I looked to people on that bus, I'm sure they were all stressed, right? Because you don't have a house anymore. Your currency is rendered uh, meaningless or valueless. You lost all your stuff, uncertainty of jobs, where are you going? But the one thing was common. Everyone on that bus was like playing music, singing, laughing along the way. And I realized that day there's neither the journey nor the destination, but the companions that mattered the most. You might be on a shitty journey on the way to hell, but with great companions, yeah. you're going to be singing and laughing along the way. Um, and that that helped me a lot with like, you know, dealing with uncertainty around startups or relationships in, in general. And then um, a little bit after we, we spent some time in Dubai and then came back to Kuwait, um, I went to New England school. I actually ditched all my A-level exams because the last, like I, I had probably decided in high school that, um, you know, high school is all bullshit. <laughs> and, and so I bunked all my A-level exams and um, I didn't even go to any of the classes in the last year. Like I would 
I would go to school, sign in, and then jump from the back, go smoke shisha with friends and whatnot. Um, and, uh, and yeah, so I bunked all my uh, exams. And then we immigrated to Canada. And my, my parents were like, I, I, I told my parents, I think I should do another year of high school. And my dad's like, you definitely failed. That's why you're saying this. But anyway, <laughs> so I, I, I kind of like effectively dropped out of high school, but I had to go to university. My parents were like, hey, what the hell, right? Um, and um, I wanted to go to chef school, actually. And my mom didn't let me. And, and she said, you need to go to engineering. But I had no transcripts. So I applied to a bunch of universities in Canada. And uh, they're like, hey, what are your transcripts from high school? And I'm like, there's political unrest going on in Kuwait, so I don't have it. So one of the universities that I applied to, I got in, they let me do an entrance exam. And of course, like the A-levels are way advanced, right? And, um, and, and I get in and they're like, okay, we'll wait for your transcripts. One semester rolled around and they forgot to follow up with me. And then I graduated <laughs> with an engineering degree <laughs> without, without uh, high school diploma. So that's the story, but I have a lot of good connections in Kuwait. I have, uh, I go back, uh, geez, almost every year. I love the food there. I love the people there, the vibe, the startup communities coming up. Um, uh, this year I didn't, although I went to Dubai a couple months ago, but uh, next yeah. year, definitely I'm, I'm coming back to Kuwait. I spoke at the ArabNet conference a couple of times. I love Kuwait, man. Really? It's great. Like, yeah. yeah. Um, Wait, were you at any of the ArabNet conferences 2017 to 19 ish? No, I think 2016 and maybe 2017. Maybe 20. I think 2017 too. Huh. We may have crossed paths. Uh, for sure. Maybe. It was at the um, at this hotel ballroom. Uh, there's always at a hotel ballroom. <laughs> yeah. Oh yeah, of course. But uh, yeah, actually, yes, I remember specifically the, the, the um, oh man, I used to work literally in the building right next to it and then the building on the opposite side to it for almost like four years. So I should know the name of the building, but I've completely forgotten. But yeah. So you, you, Sh- it was in Shark, right? It was in Shark or Kuwait City? Kuwait City, maybe. Yeah, it, it, it was in Shark next to the new um, NBK, like the bank building, right? Yeah. yeah, yeah Under construction at the time. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Wow, I'm just kind of coming full circle, and you're talking about someplace right next to me. It's kind of weird, but yeah. <laughs> but uh, um, yeah, okay. So I mean, you, you go to Canada, you weasel your way out of college with no transcript, somehow getting a degree. Um, so moral of the story: if you failed a test in your exam, and you don't want your parents to know, just hope for a war to break out. But after you get out of engineering school, <laughs> after you get out of engineering school. Um, you know, how do you get to the kind of entrepreneurial ecosystem? Like when did the startup bug bite you? Definitely. So, you know, after I finished engineering, so my, my girlfriend, my wife at the time, she also grew up in Kuwait and we'd been dating since teens. And she got into med school. She went, she went to school in, in New Jersey and got into med school there. And so I knew that my time in Canada is short lived because I'm going to have to follow her along uh, around if I wanted to be with her. So I moved to New Jersey like uh, probably within a year of graduating university in Canada, I moved to New Jersey. I worked in product at a company. It was a startup kind of. And um, yeah, effectively, um, after I joined, um, a few months later, the chief operating officer quit. And, and it's like, hey, you spec out the product and, and you sell it kind of thing. So I got that first experience working in a small sort of uh, you know, 10 person company. And we sold to large companies like Tiffany, Armani, Simon and Schuster. We built 
supply chain software that control the flow of merchandise in the warehouse. Like basically take an order, find where it is in the warehouse, pick, pack, and ship it for the cheapest rates. So I got great experience there. Um, 2008 hit and uh, layoffs happened, I had to shutter the company. Then uh, uh, then went to another startup in the in the ticketing space and and um, worked there. That also didn't really succeed. And when I when I say didn't really succeed, meaning companies that get acquired, but none of the team executives, founders, team make any great money, to me is not a success, it's a failure. It just looks good on paper, right? You got acquired. After that, um, that um, ticketing company, that startup, my wife had finished uh, residency and she was applying for a fellowship. And I told her, you know, I can't be on the East Coast. I got to go to San Francisco. Um, I don't know about you, but like, I, if I want to excel in tech, I need to, I need to be in in the Bay Area. And she fought it to the nail because her whole family's in New Jersey, and we we argued, fought everything. And she's like, "Fine, I'm going to apply to one university. If I get in, we're going to go there." That one university was Stanford, and it was like pulling a lottery. We won the lottery. She she got a fellowship at Stanford. Now she's an ER physician there. Um, and so that's how my entrepreneurial journey started. When I moved to San Francisco, I started working on a number of startups. I started doing stuff with Startup Weekend. Um, I did a, a startup in the AI for um, customer service space, Chatbot, 2013-14 Chatbot. Nobody even called it a Chatbot. It that failed. Right? And I did a, yeah, automatically, exactly. And then I did and a it's startup. Just or? Um, you know, um, so so the story there was, uh we we looked at and researched um how big brands on twitter were not responsive to customers and so we ran a touring test on twitter to see hey what if we could automate responses like a real human and it worked with big brands like jetblue and whatnot and so we started doing customer development calling large brands um and and we would ask like have you ever been in a situation where you know, your customer service agents are inundated. What happens? And they're like, oh, you know, they don't respond on time. Then we get abused on Twitter. Then we get, you know, we get flack from the CEO and all of this. And I'm like, if you had a magic wand, how would you see it working? And they're like, if we had a magic wand, we would want something that automatically responds like a real human. So we built automatically. Now, what ended up happening was after that exercise, talking to hundred people or so, that's, this is how like customer development goes wrong, right? Like talk to customers, figure out an ideal customer profile, talk to customers, validate the idea. The issue there was that all these large brands were using like Salesforce or Oracle and to integrate with them, you have to go through a huge security review and all of that, right? Yeah. And so we're like, okay, you know what, man, we obviously can't integrate with their tools. We're not going to build a customer su- uh, success platform from scratch. Why don't we find a customer service uh, platform that we can integrate with? And so I ran to Zendesk, was doing a conference, talked to their API people. And, and Zendesk said, hey, yeah, you can throw an app in our marketplace. So within a couple of weeks, we built an app, threw it in Zendesk marketplace called uh, called Automatically. And the, the premise was simple, intelligently respond to your customers like a real human. We had like thousands of people downloading it. And as soon as they downloaded, we'd get this message, stop, make this thing stop, because it was it was responding with gibberish. And we're like, oh, man. And so this is how like, you know, customer development testing goes wrong, right? Like you're, you're running with speed. And what we realized was all these large brands that we ran tests on, they 
have lots of data. So you can respond like a real human. But Zendesk at the time had all these small businesses, like 20, 30 uh, employee, uh, employee companies. They didn't have historical data. And you, you know your, your case-based reasoning or your AI only, only works so far. And so we couldn't respond like real humans. So we made it editor approved. So it created a response, but it was, it, was, uh, it was spitting out a lot of gibberish still. And people were like, oh, we got to recreate the whole response. If I knew then what I knew today, we would have killed the, the sort of tech founder arrogance, right? Because companies are looking for an outcome. They're not looking for a solution. They don't care about your AI or fancy dashboards. If I knew then what I know today, I would have gone to everyone and said, hey, tell me your most common questions and what are the answers? And we would create like a sort of, um, you know, rules engine that says, oh, if you get this query, now that is doing things that don't scale, right? You'd pick 20, 30 customers and create a rules engine and, and, and roll it out that way till eventually you can learn and the data gets voluminous. You get a lot of data, right? And that's how, uh, but we shuttered the company. We're like, ah, this is not going to go anywhere. It's going to take a lot of investment. Then I did Speakeasy. It was a company uh, which Bessemer Ventures came up with the idea and, and incubated. And I joined that founding team and ran product and growth. And that was in the AI for sales space. We had $6 million in funding from Salesforce and, and, uh, and Bessemer Ventures. And basically, the premise there was it would help uh, salespeople sell more effectively by latching into their phone calls. So before the call, it would prep them for the meeting. During the call, it would tell them what to say. And after the call, automatically update the CRM and generate the next set of action items. Now there, I learned two big things. Again, the same thing, customers want an outcome. They don't want software. But the, the second most important thing is focus. So when we launched that app, Speakeasy, in the, in the app store, we got tens of thousands of people downloading it. And when I looked at the user base, they were not salespeople, man. They were butchers, bakers, candlestick makers, taxi people using it for free calling, um, Bernie Sanders using it for election campaigning. And I'm like, what is going on? What? Right? Because the thing yeah. is, we, we offered free calling to, to incentivize downloads. So everyone was using it for free calling and not the sales features. And I'm like, at that point, I'm like, dude, if we don't stop this, we're going to fail. Because... Uh, this is the epitome of not doing things that scale in the early days, right? You want to pick a small user base and do things that don't scale and make it perfect for them. But now it's like, you're trying to be um, everything to everyone. And by the time we went back and forth and shut down free and made it paid, it was too late. When we made it paid, only salespeople stuck around and there were two or two, 300 and we made the product perfect for them. But by the time we ran out of funding, and uh, the team yeah. was like completely demotivated and we had to shutter it. I think, you know, key learning there, uh, the key learning from automatically was customers want an outcome. Don't give them software, get them to an outcome as fast as possible. The key learning at Speakeasy was you can build a big business by focusing on one kind of customer coming through one kind of channel, getting one kind of value, right? You don't, uh, in the early days, don't try to be everything to everybody. Focus on one customer, make them successful, and then expand from there. And so when we when we did Boast AI, my co-founder, uh, who I had known through university, and he also co-founded automatically with me, um, he was doing R&D tax credits for KPMG. He was running that practice. And you know, globally, hundreds of billions of dollars are given in government funding and tax incentives to fund businesses. But the application process is manual. It's cumbersome. 
Right. Uh, what happens is an accountant comes in at the end of the year and goes to the CTO or founder and says, tell me what you did in R&D that meets this narrow criteria. Give me all the documentation, write these reports. So we said, hey, we can streamline and automate it. So first step for us was let's do it manually and validate the idea. So doing it manually, getting the data more regularly, writing the reports, making sure customers get their money, then building software to automatically ingest the data from their JIRAs, their GitHubs, their payroll systems. And then once you have enough data, then applying machine learning to automate the process. And that actually, uh, you know, the learnings, the failures from automatically speakeasy were very, very helpful because we focused on one kind of customer, founder, CEOs of tech companies, one value, getting you government money for R&D, um, one channel. We built this massive community called Traction because, you know, we're competing with KPMG, right? And PwC yeah. and all these people. They're like, why would I work with like two guys from their bedroom. So we started hosting a lot of events. We, we, we had this community-led growth model. We started hosting a lot of events because we were failed founders. So we started hosting pizza nights. We'd invite speakers. And every time we'd host a pizza night, more and more people would show up. And eventually there were so many people that we, start, we hosted a conference. Then we started hosting multiple conferences. Then we started hosting two webinars a week, dinners in different cities. And like everyone from Twilio CEO to Uber CEO has been to our events. So that gave us social proof and enabled us to build a solid business, right? Because people are like, oh, these guys must be legit because they have all these big name CEOs coming to their events. So then we started getting customers and we more than doubled our revenue year over year. And we were able to bootstrap to near eight figures in revenue before raising a series A last December we raised a 23 million USD Series A. Then we did a 100 million warehouse facility to lend to startups against their R&D spend. Okay. Um, and, and I think like it's very hard to bootstrap a company. And, and I felt like, you know, this community-led growth model of building a community similar to like an on-deck traction. Um, and, and people knew that, we want to make them successful beyond our product or service, right? Our, our goal was not to just uh, help them get government money, but actually help them become successful by providing them the resources, free content, all of that to help them become successful. And that, and that along the way, bootstrapping Boast and building the traction community as a nonprofit, um, the key learning for me there was fall in love with your customer and make them successful beyond your product or service. If you build a community, you will not become a commodity. Every product eventually becomes a commodity, right? When there's competition. Right. But what differentiates Nike from every other shoe company? Nike is shoes too, because they have a massive community. They built a community around athletes and athletics. What Harley Davidson almost went bankrupt in the 80s. How did they come up? How did they do the turnaround? They built a community around the joys of riding. Um, yeah. Gainsight, HubSpot. Customer success platform, marketing automation platform. How did they create a category? They built a community. Right. So if you build a community, you will not become a commodity. So if I had to summarize the learnings automatically, customers want an outcome. They don't want software. Speakeasy was focus one kind of customer, one kind of channel, um, one kind of service and boast. The key learning was if you build a community, you won't become a commodity. So help your customers become successful beyond your product or service. So our big vision at Boast is actually not 
owning the R&D tax credit space, but it's actually to help innovators change the world. Every dollar spent in innovation returns 20 to the universe. Vaccines to robots to clean drinking water is a function of innovation. And in the last 15 years, more than 50% of the companies have evaporated because they can't innovate. So we started with saying, hey, how do we help companies innovate faster? Well, if we get them government funding and we automate that process, we need to collect their technical data and stitch it with the financial data. So first step is get them this government money. Next step is finance it so they don't have to wait for government processing times. Then it's like now we're sitting on this gold mine of data. Tell people what projects to invest in, um, who to hire, what is the ROI of the projects, how can they take it to market and commercialize faster. So through our product and the, the traction community, we want to help innovators become successful and change the world. And so, so that was that, uh, the, the mission here. And it's been, it's been a good ride because you learn a lot bootstrapping, man. Like, um, like you know, when you, get, when you take money from your parents, you're very frivolous, right? Because uh, you don't yeah. value money. That's like taking VC money. Um, when you struggle, you do more with less. And I learned to do everything from running product to doing wireframes to sending email, but everything short of writing code, although I'm an engineer, I hate uh, everything short of writing code, I know to do. So tomorrow, if everything fails, I can go and start the next thing. I can build a website from scratch. I can, yeah. I can send email blasts. I can scrape emails. Like, you know, you learn a lot when you bootstrap because you're forced to do more with less. Yeah, you know, this is why I never, I never learn anything from a rich person who's never starved, right? Because you know, if they're in their history, they've had a point where they had to go to sleep hungry, and they absolutely had to be self-sufficient and teach themselves whatever skill set necessary to succeed. I really believe that kind of pain is the best teacher. Um, I'm just saying, of all the conversations I've had with people who are successful, I'm going to define success by having a fat bank account as they spoke to me. Uh, people who did it by inheritance had almost nothing to offer in terms of lessons. Uh, you can kind of tell, and sadly, I've seen it in some points where they hit a hiccup and they have no idea what to do. Like they crumble, their world crumbles because they don't have the cash to paper over their troubles because possibly, you know, they overextended themselves or entered some place or some field where they have no experience. But, um, yeah, pain, I mean, is the, pain, pain is the precondition for growth, man. It's like bodybuilding yeah. or any sport, right? You got to do a little better every day and you learn more from failures than anything else. So like, being a part of failed startups, I learned so much. Even yeah. though Boast, I would say, is successful. And success is all subjective, right? I think uh -huh. uh, let's see where the end journey is. But we've been doubling revenue year over year. We went from 30 people last year this time to about 120 companies growing. Uh, so I feel like accomplished this time, right? Like we did something. We, we, um, I feel like all our learnings came from failures because lessons you get from success is what lessons do you get <laughs> you you get limited lessons but from failing you learn a lot right um and so that's why i tell people you know uh, especially people from larger companies want, coming to do startups or coming into startups they have these accepts uh, massive grandiose plans on powerpoints and spreadsheets and I, you know the mike tyson quote holds strong here is that everyone has a plan until you're punched in the face right release fast release often and just iterate along the way versus like you know planning I, honestly, I was about to bring up that exact same quote. And I was going to bring up my real world example of I actually joined the boxing gym very, for a very brief time in college. And that rings exceptionally true because you are, absolutely have it in your head how you're supposed to beat your adversary in the ring. 
until they actually literally punch you in the face and that goes out the door. But it 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 is absolutely true, and and yeah, every, every word you said is gold. Pain really does breed the best, you know, the, the the best operators, best investors, best anything in every field. But I want to zoom out a little bit and focus on like you know the role of government R and D tax credits, um, in like sort of the uh, the genesis story of American tech and also world tech. So I don't think people realize how crucial U.S. government financing has been. For the tech ecosystem and for startups over the last like you know 50, 60 years, like going back to like the immediate post-war era. So after World War II, the U.S. military was kind of obsessed with radar and radio components, and you know introducing an electrical engineering component to things that were you know formerly uh, either non-technical whatsoever or built on legacy systems. Um, and this was introduced like every weapon system the U.S. military had at the time, and a lot of that capital ended up flowing to Sunnyvale, California, where I used to live. And it would help the military industrial complex grow. And that's where a lot of early tech came from. Like, you know, Raytheon was born of these U.S. government credits. Uh, the same ethos behind the credits they've been doling out up until fairly recently. I mean, the predecessor of the Internet itself was ARPANET. You know, now this is kind of a thing of legend. But, you know, prior to Milnet splintering off and remain, remaining purely for defense purposes, you know, ARPANET first connected Stanford and UCLA and a whole bunch of other schools. And that was funded by ARPA, by the Advanced Research Projects Agency, which is an arm of the DOD. That was definite, like, you know, R&D uh, uh, backing, explicit R&D backing from the government. <clears throat> There's a clear progression of, like, financing from the government to private enter enterprise uh, with these large research budgets and sort of unclear business plans, but lots of promising technology, because at the time, that was really the only capital. This is pre-institutional VC. That was the only capital that was uh, that was willing to be risked in order to, you know, kind of look into a technology that may or may not work and the odds are stacked against it before they even start. So, you know, that ends up uh, going into those businesses, those experimental businesses, and that kind of fun, it goes back into government defense spending. So there's an incredible amount of technology that has come from this sort of like financing paradigm. Like uh, in terms of R&D tax credits, and I'm sure you can shed a lot more light on this, uh, Tesla and SpaceX both would not exist if not for U.S. government R&D tax credits. Uh, whether it's from the Department of Energy or from NASA or, or, or Department of Transportation or whatever it is. Um, things like the Tor browser, by the way, would, would not exist if not for the U United States Navy um, giving grants to the Tor Foundation to first develop it as what was supposed to be an encrypted Navy communications tool. Um, and th this paradigm existed outside the U.S. as well. So, uh, you know, if, if, if the Soviet Union in the 50s and 60s had not, you know, pumped state financing, state resources into Sergei Korolev's lab, and created this incredible boom in space technology that allowed them to absolutely, you know, rock the world in terms of space tech up until, you know, NASA won with the moon landing. But they pretty much did everything else first. And they did it with, with state backing. And then you look in, domestically in the States, there's Skunk Works, the infamous Skunk Works at Lockheed Martin. Um, it was, you know, financed by uh, the U.S. government looking to keep up with the air, keep up with an aeronautical edge over the Soviet Union, kind of specifically for spying, you know, clandestine and whatnot purposes. So... Um, you know, how has this evolved over the years to what we have now? Like, is, is what we have now simply the next iteration of government finance R&D? And w where does it fit really in, in how tech operates today? Definitely. I think uh, it takes a village. It takes a country. It takes uh, um, a community to help a startup, right? Like, like they say, uh, akin to um, raising a kid, it takes a, it takes a village. And, and so you need all elements there, government support, um, non-dilutive sources of capital and government support, and then the venture financing and all of that, right? So it's funny because 
hundreds of billions of dollars are given globally in R&D incentives to fund businesses, right? Apart from the grants, um, the tax credit, for example, in the U.S., um, uh, companies can get 10 to 20% of their product development costs as a cashback. In Canada, though, it's even more insane. You can get up to 64 to 70% of your product development cost as a cashback. That's why wow. even at Boast, although, although we automate this process, most of our team is in Canada. A lot of people in the US, now that the borders, there are no borders in the post-pandemic world, people are opening offices in Canada. Uh, UK, Australia, France, New Zealand, they all give you north of 35% in R&D incentives, right? So basically, if you're developing new technology or improving existing technology and facing technological challenges, you can recover a good portion of your R&D spend as a cashback. Now, the US, I think, is the worst program uh, for R&D incentives compared to the world. Like Canada gives you 64% cashback um, if you're a startup. In the US, it ends up being 10%. That's cashback. Um, there, there are lots of lobbying and talks going on to, to up that and increase that. So we see where it goes. But if you look at it, Amazon got over a billion dollars in R&D tax credits in the last few wow. years, right? Right. Um, that benefits well, they're very the large... undercapitalized. They need the money, you know. So, <laughs> so, so that's the large companies, and that's why I, I, I wrote this article for Bloomberg on the real problem with Amazon's tax bills. It's really like all these large companies take advantage of the tax credits, but the smaller companies, it's very minuscule for them. The issue with anything government, though. Like imagine raising money from a VC is hard. Anything government ends up being mired in red tape, right? You got to go through all this process. You got to find all this documentation. You got to go through audits if the government audits you. Like getting anything from Uncle Sam causes people fear. Yeah. And that's why we came about. We're like, you know what? All this data exists in people's systems. If we can collect this data and apply them to the tax rules so we can streamline the process of them getting this money from the government and then finance those credits while they're waiting to get it from the government, I think it's a big win. I, I think um, you know as we go into the next decade, capital has become hugely democratized or it will be, right? So if you look at the whole capital landscape, maybe five, six years ago, your approach was you need seed money. I'm gonna, I have to contact a bunch of VCs. Right. Yep. Um, now the landscape has changed. Let's look at it from equity financing perspective. From the equity financing perspective, you got the traditional VCs, but then you got hedge funds like Tiger Global. In the last year, Tiger has funded more than 400 deals. That's insanity because they outsource all of their due diligence to someone like a Bain or an ENY. But in the years prior to that, in the last three years prior to 2021, Tiger had done only 40 deals or something like that, right? So there's this hedge funds coming into the space because they have this thesis that uh, technology and software is largely undervalued. So you got that. Now you've got a whole bunch of entrepreneurs raising money. So there's this rise like Elad Gill, for example, but there's this rise of solo VCs like founders who are founders of unicorns or sub unicorns are raising their sidecar funds. There's more micro VCs this year. I've met like more yourself. people. Yeah. I'm, I'm not doing a fund <laughs> yet, but, but definitely, yeah. uh, you know, a consideration. Personal right? capital. Yeah. 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 Like more people I know are angel investing. More people I know have raised funds. There's just a lot more money to go around. So what will happen is more and more companies are, are, giving out money, right? So more and more solo VCs, it, I, I kid you not, man, 
this year, I must have met over 300 people who are either founders or founders who've got along with friends who've raised small 10, $20 million funds. So that's causing more money to go in the ecosystem, right? Seed money. Then you've got companies like Pipe, CapChase, Clearco, that is doing revenue-based financing or debt financing, right? Right. Then, and 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 at very low rates, man. Like CapChase is like five to seven percent interest rate. Like, geez, if if you have revenues and you're getting that kind of uh, rates, why ever raise venture? Like one would think, right? Like, right. Well, equity is well, always more expensive. That's true. I mean, the, one of the debates I have with people, you know, occasionally on this show is, will this actually survive? Uh, you know, the non-zero rate environment whenever that day comes. Uh, you know, that, that kind of sounds like saying when the Martians land nowadays, but like, you know, if we revert to long-term four or 5% rate, will those options continue to be available? Things like, you know, um, like will pipe be as financially lucrative as it is for the investors later on? Well, frankly, I don't know. Maybe we'll get Harry Hurst on the show at some point. But I, I mean, at what point in, in the company's life cycle and the startup's life cycle, does it make sense to use something like post AI and actually start looking at the financial effects of R&D credits? Definitely. So I think, you know, the way I look at it, you got to think about it as a holistic capital stack. And by the way, coming to like Pipe, will the investors make money or not? I think eventually they'll figure out a model, but every democratization in every industry ends up being good for the consumer, right? Like Uber came about, it ended up becoming good for the consumer. So did Airbnb and so will Pipe and, and Boast AI and like, you know, all the companies of our generation coming out. But I think the way to look at it is this, um, building a company is in phases. So phase one is I need to validate the idea. What do you need to validate the idea? If you're in B2B SaaS, get five, 10 paying customers. Your number one North Star metric is validation, meaning how many people can pay me to try it out if you're in B2B SaaS. Next phase is product market fit. What is your number one metric? Your number one metric is not how many customers you can jam through it. Your number one metric is retention. Uh, The biggest North Star metric of product market fit is not people trying me out, but every time they have the same problem, they keep coming back. So high retention. Can I get to... 100% 100% net revenue retention. And then, you know, the secondary metric there is like, can I get to half a million or more in revenue, right? That's your, that's your number one metric. Um, in between those two phases, let's say you have customer validation. Unless you're a super successful uh, entrepreneur or you have a great network, just to validate an idea, sometimes it's very hard to raise money, right? Especially if you're outside Silicon Valley, right? Oh, I have this idea. Well, I haven't validated the market. Give me money so I can validate it. How many people are going to give you? Unless unless you you have a previous successful startup, why would I give you the money? I don't know you from Adam, right? right? So at that phase, it's like a lot of founders, sweat equity, they get some contract sign and whatnot. And then they string along some seed money, right? Uh, oh, I've got 10 customers that, that are paying me to try this out. I'm building out an MVP. Uh, okay, I raise some pre-seed money. Uh, or seed money, right? Half a million, maybe a million, because I got this validation, great. Or I went to an accelerator incubator. Now my next step is, okay, I need to get to product market fit. Now let me get more and more customers and see if they're sticking around. And okay, now somehow I managed to get to half a million in revenue. And I think I have product market fit. Now I can raise my series A. And the next phase is, can I figure out one repeatable, scalable channel to get customers, 
whether it's sales, whether it's events, whether it's community. So somehow now I've got to like 3 million or so in revenue and I figured out I have an SDR team and a sales team and it's crushing it. Now I can raise my series B. Then um, at that B phase, um, when I figured out um, sort of, you know, one repeatable scalable channel, then you figure out, hey, what's my next act? Can I spend, I'm spending like 75% of my time scaling the channels I've nailed and I'm spending 25% of my time trying new things. Now I'm ready for a C round, maybe at like five plus million in revenue, right? So when you look across that, um, the way you can leverage government grants is as soon as you're spending money on product development, you can leverage government incentives because the government tax credits are to fund your product development. If you're not spending any money on product development, you they're not going to reimburse you. So as soon as you're spending like your hired engineers in the US or Canada, then you can start applying for tax credits to, to get money, get that money back, right? So in Canada, let's say, let's say in Canada, you, you hired one engineer. Imagine this, you're paying that engineer $140,000 or $120,000, right? Um, now, if you're in the early stages, it's complicated tech, you can get almost 100,000 cash back. That's great because you spend yeah, that money. That moves the needle for a tiny startup, yeah. And in the in the US, it's much less. It's ten percent. So, like, say you spend hundred thousand dollars on an engineer, it's only ten thousand, but something better than nothing. Now, once you start having revenues and you have ARR, right, recurring revenue, then you can start leveraging debt, right? Because the way this ARR MRR financing works is um, they give you like maybe five to twenty x your MRR upfront. So, like, let's say they look at your net revenue retention. So usually maybe after a couple of years, like how many customers you have, what is your churn rate? If your churn is really low and your NRR is over 100%, they're like, okay, you know what? It's a safe bet that they have product market fit. Customers are not leaving the product. So let's say they have 100,000 in, in MRR. I'm going to give them half a million or a million bucks, right? To finance. So imagine this, if you have 100,000 in MRR, that's actually technically 1.2 million in ARR, but you can't get all of that until the end of the year, right? But if somebody comes and says, I'm gonna give you half a million bucks as a loan at like six, 7% interest rate, that's perfect, right? Uh, that's a good capital injection that can help you hire salespeople, help you invest in marketing and whatnot. So that's how I would look at it is like, uh, first try to use sweat equity um, to get validation. Once you have validation, people are saying, we'll pay you to try this out, especially in the B2B space, see if you can get paid pilots. Uh, I don't I don't understand the B2C space. I understand the B2B space. Well, B2C is like, it takes a lot of money to get to a critical mass. But in the B2B space, if you've got paid pilots, you're doing things that don't scale, uh, you've validated the market, then your next phase is get to product market fit. And and uh, and to get to product market filled, you got to build a product. So when you're spending money on product development, you can take the tax credit. Then once you're a product market fit, you can take this MRR financing and venture it. And along the way, if it makes sense for you, you can raise venture capital. Now, venture capital, still the key metrics hold, right? Uh, people care about, is there founder market fit? Is this founder uniquely suited to serve this market? My co-founder, for example, was in the R&D task credit space at KPMG, understood it really well. He's an accountant and an engineer. Um, so there was that founder market fit. 
Um, most importantly, they're going to understand how big is this market? Is this a large TAM? Um, and you know, all the VCs say, right? If a bad founder meets a good market, the market wins. If a good founder meets a bad market, the market wins. But if a good founder meets a good market, magic happens. So is it is 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 it a solid market? Is it a is a great market? Is there founder market fit? Meaning these founders uniquely understand that. And then and then I think those two are enough to raise your pre-seed or seed round. And if you don't get into YC or Techstars, it doesn't matter. There's like 100 options here. But like if you validate the market with your sweat equity, get customers to pay, you can usually raise a small round. Then at product market fit, you're like, okay, people are coming. They're using the product. They're liking it. They're signing up and they're not leaving. They're logging in like weekly or monthly. They're getting value. Customers are getting an outcome. Then you right. can go and raise your, you know, seed or series A, post seed, like series A round. And the metric there is really, what is your growth rate? What is your net revenue retention? And what is your gross margin? Ultimately, at scale, those three things are the driving factors, right, of valuation. Is a company, if the company is going growing two to three X or more year over year, mm-hmm. if the company has high gross margin, more than 80%, and the company has high net revenue retention. And net revenue retention really means if you sign no new customer, what percentage of your revenue you're losing? If you sign no new customer year over year, so like let's say you got 10 million right. in revenue, um, existing revenue minus churn plus upsell, cross-sell. If you, if you sign no new customers, can you keep all that revenue? So if your NRR is 100% or more and best in class is 140, but best in class for SMBs is usually teetering around 100 or so. So if your NRR is 100%, if your gross margin is 80%, meaning it's a it's a, it's going to be a profitable business and you're growing 2, 3x, let's say 3x or more, you can command the valuation you want and that's going to drive everything, right? But the first step right. is is get some paid pilots and the next step is, Get to product market fit. Get get to high retention. Agreed. Well, that, that was extremely insightful, and I'm sure like a hundred people have to like play that over a number of times and take a lot of really detailed notes that they could put into their next deck. But I, I had one other kind of qualitative question to ask you: How susceptible are you if you're a founder who's kind of building your assumptions around the availability of R and D tax credits? How susceptible are you to the whims of politicians? So do these R&D tax credits kind of respond very quickly to changes in political administrations or you have sort of long-term clarity in this kind of a thing? You know, <clears throat> countries like Canada, UK, Australia, France, New Zealand, it's been stable for very many, many, many years. And they're all improving because there's a direct correlation between innovation going to innovation funding going to startups and the economy booming. The US used to expand expire every year, but in the PATH Act of 2015, they made the R&D credit permanent and uh, mm-hmm. they made provisions for startups to take advantage. So I think all the politicians are seeing that there's a net-net benefit to the economy by supporting startups. So I would see more funding going into startups over the years versus reducing it. Like, for example, look at it this way. The reason why Canadian startups need less seed capital, technically, because they get 64% cash back from the government. All of a sudden, if you kill that program, companies are going to lose it, right? Um, uh, It's going to have an adverse effect because then you're going to see companies now starting to outsource more to India, Eastern Europe. They're going to find places where they can find even cheaper labor. Like, why would they build in Canada or the U.S.? 
right? So if the government subsidizes hiring locally, people will build local. You can't say build local and give all the tax breaks to the Amazons of the world. If you, if you incentivize me to build local in the early days, then of course, when I scale, um, I'm going to remember you and, and keep building local, right. right? Like you remember the people who supported you when you had nothing. Correct, correct. And, you know, I, I think Shopify was a major benefactor of, of the uh, uh, Canadian R&D policy. Uh, you know, one example I can think of, you know, just to, to illustrate how badly the U.S. can use an expansion of these tax credits is the fact that uh, I know some seed and pre-seed startups based in Los Angeles in and around L.A. Uh, who have now had to hire in Paraguay and Uruguay because, you know, the, the, the cost of uh, hiring engineers has just soared recently. And I'm sure if there was state backing there and, you know, also immigration backing, that's a different debate. There would be uh, you know a little easier to kind of keep things within the LA ecosystem. So it definitely does not benefit the U.S. in the long term to not have this you know pro- uh, program, A, available and B, expanded. Um, and the other thing I wanted to, to speak of briefly was, you know, the, the, R- the method or of doling out R&D tax credits, for example, in the U.S. has been fairly set and a number of different um, American federal agencies have done so. For example, like, you know, Department of Energy has a whole bunch, like we said, you know, that they that they gave to uh, SpaceX. Um, there's NASA and and so with Tesla, and then there's uh, NASA and SpaceX. Um, but you know, I, I can think of one example where the U.S. government kind of broke with their traditional way of doling out financing, which is the CIA actually has a VC wing. Now, I thought that was like a tinfoil hat conspiracy theory when I first when I first heard it, but I checked it out, and they actually have a VC wing called InQtel. IN-Q-TEL, um, which is a straight-up BC financed by the Central Intelligence Agency. Um, I don't know whether this is a one-off or the beginning of uh, maybe a long-term shift in capital allocation methods by the U.S. federal government, but do you have any insight there? I actually, unfortunately, don't, but I wouldn't be surprised that a lot of these um, these agencies have some sort of VC arm or some sort of uh, granting mechanism, right? Like there's the whole SBIR grant system where they fund innovation. Like there's more and more money going in. Navigating it is a bigger pain than anything else. That's why companies like us exist because like, you know, um, they don't do a good job promoting it. And then they don't make it do a good job um, uh, creating uh, sort of the framework to apply, right? Like it, it becomes unnecessarily complicated uh, a lot of these things, but no, I haven't heard of this particularly one, particular one, unfortunately. Yeah, it, it would be quite interesting, like kind of pitching the Department of Energy's VC and then pitching Treasury's VC, running <laughs> an alternative energy startup or a tech or fintech startup, you know, respectively. But um, yeah, it, it, it would be interesting. But another question is, do you actually have to be a citizen? Uh, or a citizen-owned entity in the country where you're applying for these tax credits, or is it sort of open so that people from around the world can come and apply and get their credits so long as they're based in the country? As long as the company is incorporated in the company in the country and you employ people in the country. So if you're US, you're a Delaware C Corp and you have product development here. If you're in Canada, you're a Canadian-controlled private corporation uh, and you have... Um, product development in Canada. You can apply. You don't have to be a citizen. Yeah. Makes sense for the economy, I suppose. Yeah, definitely. Right. And then there is a myriad of other grants that latch on because you're hiring local. That's true. Oh, so I mean obviously there's there's state level grants and does both AI kind of help you pursue those as well? Some of them we we guide and we we help with as well, the state level tax credits and and uh, if not, we have other partners for it. Interesting. 
so if there are any startups or startup founders listening to this uh, who need help getting R&D tax credits in the U.S., Canada, or a few other places, uh, they can check out the program at Boast.ai, Boast.ai correct? Yeah, definitely. Boast.ai. Awesome. And before we wrap up, I want to ask, what does the future look like for you and for Boast.ai? What can we expect in terms of new products, new markets? Definitely. I think in the next few years, you'll see, you know, it's tied to the belief that fall in love with your customer and make the customer successful. Fall in love with the customer's problem, right? Customers want R&D credits to fund their innovation. Um, and, and why do they want this money? To fund their innovation and to accelerate innovation, right? And so we'll see more products launching around funding innovation and accelerating innovation from providing insights to money to companies so they can fund and accelerate their innovation. I can't wait. I'm sure Boast is up some up to some pretty cool stuff. Awesome. Uh, Lloyd, thanks so much for taking the time to speak with us. Hey, thank you, man. Always, always a pleasure connecting with someone from back home. <laughs> yeah, by the way, next time you're out here, I'm happy to give you a tour of everything that's changed since you, you were last around. Uh, obviously, dinner on me. Definitely. We will. I'll do that. I'll make a plan to come in uh, in March or so. Yeah, I, I may be here. Yeah, let's uh, let's definitely keep in touch. Lloyd, awesome. Pleasure, man. Great pleasure. Thanks so much. Uh, and yeah, stay in touch, man. Ping me anytime if I can help with anything. I'm happy to help. And uh, let's stay in touch. I got to hop on another call. But uh, happy holidays. And um, if you find yourself in Austin or San Francisco, ping me and I'll ping you when I'm in Kuwait. I'm most likely coming in March. Yes, we will definitely be in touch. All right. Thanks, Take care, Lord. brother. Love and Take peace. Care. Bye. See ya. Bye-bye.